Our second lesson is Paul's second letter to Timothy, chapter 2. You then, my child, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus, and what you have heard from me through many witnesses... In trust to faithful people who will be able to teach others as well. Share in suffering like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No one serving in the army gets entangled in everyday affairs. The soldier's aim is to please the enlisting officer. And in the case of an athlete, no one is crowned without competing according to the rules. It is the farmer who does the work who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say. For the Lord will give you understanding in all things. Remember Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, a descendant of David. That is my gospel, for which I suffer hardship, even to the point of being chained like a criminal. But the word of God is not chained. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, so that they may also obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is sure. If we have died with Him, we will also live with Him. If we endure, we will also reign with Him. If we deny Him, He will also deny us. If we are faithless, He remains faithful, for He cannot deny Himself. Brothers and sisters, this too is the word of the Lord. Amen. And now, boys and girls, with moms and dads and grandparents' permission, if you'd like to go back with Miss Stephanie for kids' time, Uh, Go ahead and make your way to the back of the sanctuary. There you go. So earlier this month, I preached uh, two sermons on evil. And some members of our congregation said, Wow, Pastor Bruce, those weren't really cheery, upbeat sermons. I don't know how you can make evil cheery and upbeat. I don't know how you do a song and dance routine when it comes to the problem of evil. So I gave you a break and had Jerry preach last week. So this is the third installment on the problem of evil. And I'm warning you right now, uh, there's no jokes in this sermon. I don't know how to joke about evil. Uh, But I hope that uh, these three sermons um, are a blessing to you. And God has certainly worked on me as I've had that word of life that word of truth uh, speak into my heart and into my witness in my life. Uh, If you uh, are a visitor for the first time today, or if you're a member of the congregation who's been away for whatever reason, uh, both of those first two messages are on the church website where you can listen to them as audio files. And I hope you'll do that because today's final message really builds on what we've already learned from God's Word in those first two sermons. Over and over in Scripture... We learn that as people of faith, specifically as Christians, we should never, ever be surprised when evil raises its ugly head in this world. We should never be surprised when confronted with evil. The prophets of Israel spoke of it. The Psalms name it again and again. Jesus addressed evil in each of the four Gospels, and Paul is not afraid to name evil for what it is in his New Testament letters to congregations and individual people like Timothy. So what we can say, given the witness of Scripture, is that evil is anything and everything that is morally repugnant, that is wrong, 
according to the standard of God's word. Evil is that which is sinful or wicked. It can also refer, according to scripture, as that which causes harm. The word is used both ways in the Bible. So everything that contradicts the holy nature of God and the holy purposes of God can rightly be called that which is evil. Now, today we're shifting gears and we're going to talk about that which is sometimes referred to and which we experience as institutional evil. Institutional evil. Many people would say that the most striking, the most horrific example of institutional evil in modern times was the final solution of the Nazi regime as they wanted to systematically exterminate the Jewish people. It was a plan developed by Heinrich Himmler and administered by Adolf Eichmann. Institutional evil of epic proportion. But sometimes institutional evil is not so blatant. It's not so bold. Sometimes it's not so easy to see. It doesn't always make the headlines. It may not reach the scale of a world at war. Sometimes this institutional evil involves the struggles that good people like you face in your day-to-day lives and the daily battles in which you find yourselves. When an employer, when an employer is expected by the employer to lie to customers when people in an office are told to overcharge for services rendered when people are instructed to cook the books this too is institutional evil and more than a few of the members of this congregation have told me over the years that you've been confronted by this kind of evil in your workplaces and some of you were even so bold as to turn in your letters of resignation because you challenged what was going on and you were told that's the way it's done here. If you don't like it, there's the door. And so you sacrificed income and the security of a J-O-B job because you stood on God's word and you would not be part of that dishonesty and that deception. God bless you. Some people who do not know the truth of God's word will say other things about evil than what the scriptures say. Some will say, that evil is not real. It's just a philosophical category. Uh, Some learned people will say that evil, in essence, is insubstantial. Uh, It's just a word that we use to describe the absence of good. And there's even a Latin phrase for it, privatio boni, the privation of that which is good. So I ask you, brothers and sisters in Christ, how can the death of over six million innocent people under Adolf Hitler be called insubstantial? How can their extermination be called merely the absence of good? It was very substantial. And it was carried out intentionally through the power and the presence of institutional evil that was at once maniacal and methodical. You look at these happy faces when the death camps, the concentration camps were liberated. Those people are not rejoicing because the absence of good had gone away. They're not rejoicing because, you know, a philosophical category has been renamed. 
They're smiling. They're ecstatic because evil, real evil, had been defeated. The death camps were liberated and Hitler was crushed. In less than a decade, after the end of World War II, and some of you are old enough to remember this, a movement that started in the 50s became very popular. It was called the power of positive thinking. Now, there's nothing wrong with thinking positively. Don't we want our children and grandchildren to think positively? Wouldn't we rather them be optimistic than, you know, pessimistic? But that power of positive thinking that started in the 50s morphed and evolved over the years. And by the 60s, it had uh, developed into something called the human potential movement. And then by the 70s, it was, you know, not just the age of Aquarius, but it was new age thinking. And while each of these worldviews and philosophies are somewhat unique given their historic context, they all hold certain beliefs in common. Namely, first of all, that evil is just the absence of good. It's just a word. That there are absolutely, absolutely no limits to what humans can achieve. And thirdly, they all believe, and even the New Age gurus of today, believe that positive thinking and positive energy of humanity can overcome all challenges and that limits are simply a false belief. So on the one end of the spectrum, these philosophies can be expressed in the rather uh, childish and immature expression, you've heard it before, when the world gives you lemons, make lemonade. Um, I was talking with a member years ago who heard that expression from friends when she was going through a difficult time, and then she shared with me uh, a different version of that, and it was, uh, when life gives you lemons, put them in the freezer, and then take them out and throw them at all the people who are telling you to get over it. (laughs) (laughs) On the other end of the spectrum, from the childish you know, when life gives you lemons, add sugar and make lemonade. You've got a statement like this. Hold on to your hats, fasten your seatbelts. This is blasphemy. You are an embryo God. You and you alone are the judge of your worth. You must find the place inside yourself where nothing is impossible. That's the New Age guru, Deepak Chopra. And his books and his lecture fees have earned him over $110 million. You see, teaching the absence of good is very profitable. But neither lemonade nor embryo gods, whatever that is, can deal with the reality of evil. Those non-biblical philosophies can only ignore evil or or pretend it doesn't exist until the world proves them wrong over and over and over again. Some of you, years ago, lost your uh, naivete and your innocence 
on a December morning, the 7th, 1941. Some of you, my elders, remember when your world and your worldview changed when Pearl Harbor was attacked. That was a singular moment in time for so many of you. For my generation, that, that moment when so many of us lost our innocence was when our teachers told us that school was letting out early because the president had been assassinated. We lost a lot of innocence that day. We learned about evil, and then that was followed by the deaths of Martin Luther King and Bobby Kennedy. Fast forwarding, when Kirsten and I became parents, like many of you, our children lost their naivete on a Tuesday morning, 9-11, when their world changed. That day, finally, some people realized that evil is not just a concept, it's not just a philosophical category, that sin really does exist, and that positive human energy by itself is not enough to deal with the world in which we find ourselves. On 9-11, we saw yet again that humans can and will cause great destruction and death, fueled by the evil of ignorance and hatred. 9-11 reminded us, just as the final solutions of the Nazis 75 years ago, that evil is real, and the sooner we name it for what it is, the sooner we can grow into the fullness of faith and maturity of discipleship that God desires for us. We live in the power of a gospel, which means good news. Good news for sinners like you and me, who desperately need a God, to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves, no matter how hard we try, no matter how sincere we might be, we cannot overcome the problem of sin within ourselves or the evil around us. If we could make ourselves holy, Christ did not need to die on the cross. We can't make ourselves holy and we certainly can't make the world holy by positive thinking. And so, like the psalmist, did you hear the first lesson? We come before God acknowledging evil, and then at the same time, we acknowledge, we confess our spiritual poverty before the Lord of Lords. Like the psalmist, we admit to the Lord and to one another that we're all essentially poor and needy, no matter how much we've got in the bank, no matter how many fine possessions we may own. Spiritually speaking, we're poor. And we're not embryo gods, that's for sure. We're sons and daughters of the living Father who've all lost their way. And God came to bring us home. Like the psalmist, we know that the Lord alone is our help in every time of trouble. We know that only God can deliver us from evil as Jesus Jesus taught us to pray. And so we find our hope and strength in God, not ourselves. We seek His will. Uh, We dare, by the Spirit's prompting, to do our best and to do what is best, even when it means suffering. For the Lord, the Jesus Christ, whom we worship, suffered in our place. We keep in mind what Paul told Timothy. Remember Jesus Christ raised from the dead, for which I suffer hardship, even to the point of being chained like a criminal. But the Word of God is not chained. Therefore, I endure everything. If we die with Christ, we'll live with Christ. If we endure with Him, we'll reign with Him. You see, evil is real. 
but it doesn't have the final word. God has the final word. History proves it. Hitler thought his regime would be a third Reich, a third empire after the first empire of the ancient Romans and in his mind the second empire of Germany in the 19th century. He thought his third regime would last a thousand years and it came crashing down in just 12 years when Berlin fell in the spring of 45. History proves again and again that God's word prevails. Pontius Pilate and the temple authorities thought that Jesus was dead and gone, that the problem of that Nazarene was over. We put him to death. We won. But what they believed was their victory lasted not even three days. Raised from the dead was our crucified king that Easter morning. And Jesus is alive and still reigns as king of kings while the Roman Empire is on the ash heap of history. Last Sunday when Pastor Jerry was preaching, I had meetings in my office as I often do when I'm not in the pulpit. And I met with a young man and we talked about many things including the reality of sin and evil in the world, the brokenness of our own community, and we even talk about our own sin, for which the blood of Christ is our only hope. And we looked at the serenity prayer that so many people know. How many of you know the serenity prayer? But so many people only know a part of it because it was written by a Christian by the name of Reinhold Niebuhr who had also experienced and lost his naivete during World War II. And the full prayer helps us as we deal with the reality of evil, the evil within us, and the sin for which Christ died to save us and change us. And so this morning I'm going to conclude with the full serenity prayer. And as I read it, I would invite you to make it your own prayer this day. God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference living one day at a time, enjoying one moment at a time, accepting hardship as the pathway to peace, taking as he did the sinful world as it is, not as I would have it, trusting that he will make all things right if I surrender to his will, that I may be reasonably happy in this life and supremely happy with him forever in the next. Amen. So together we affirm our faith in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Please stand as you're able for the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. On the third day he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Ushers, thank you again for serving today and 
this house of worship. You may be seated, and I invite the ushers to come forward to receive our tithes and offerings.